Well, kinfolk, happy Sunday. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, you've given us all that we need. You've poured out blessings upon us. You've given us the word upon which to live. Receive, we humbly ask, our gratitude and our love for you. And by the sign of our own discipleship, lead us into deeper relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. These past uh, four or five, six years, uh, we've been going through a pretty weird time in America. Uh, I've been reading uh, and carefully rereading the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I know a lot of clergy folk out there are reading Dietrich Bonhoeffer's work, trying to figure out what God wants from us. Uh, Bonhoeffer was a German pastor. He was an excellent writer, and he was a very good Christian by any estimation. He became a church pastor during the rise of the Third Reich in Germany, during the rise of Hitler to power. And he wrote extensively about his experiences there. I think, we, I think just about everybody imagines themselves, imagines what they would do in the midst of some horrifying upheaval in the life and culture of their own community or country. We imagine ourselves on the right side of history I think that oftentimes these days we don't have to imagine it, we're living it. I think if you want to know what you would have done during the rise of Hitler in Germany, you can simply look around and see what you're doing today. Are you living for righteousness? Are you seeking to protect the afflicted? Is there some single group of people that is being picked out by the powerful for persecution? I think that recently immigrants have fit that bill. I think that recently trans folk, our, our transgender brothers and sisters, have fit that bill. Seemingly out of this vacuum, they've been picked out, set aside by the powerful, persecuted by the law. I think that we could know what we would do in that terrifying age by simply observing what we're doing today. And I think that Bonhoeffer knew this. He had foresight. His friends continuously attempted to get him to leave Germany during that season, during the rise of fascism. And they knew him. They knew what he would do. He was incapable of not telling the truth. And they thought it would be best for him. And he'd spent some time in America prior in his life to get out of here, go. But he, he, he couldn't leave. He, he, he was part of the resistance. But he was certain, he was convicted that he would need to remain in Germany. Now, he was faithful that the madness of fascism would crash upon the rocks of history, as it always does. But he felt that it was perhaps his calling to stay behind in Germany and help rebuild the church in Germany. Because he knew that the church, specifically the Lutheran church, had been infected with uh, nationalism uh, with a kind of Christian nationalism and he believed that if they were going to continue to have a church in Germany after the Reich had been defeated they would need pastors who could stay and help help wipe that stain off of that church remember that there were chapels there were Christian chapels at the concentration camps at the death camps these were not for the Jews. They were for the, the soldiers, the Christian 
Lutheran, German guards at those camps to worship in. Bonhoeffer saw all of this. He knew that nationalism and Christianity are utterly incompatible with each other, so he wanted to stay. He did stay. He was arrested. He was found guilty of attempting to um, assassinate Hitler. And he was hanged by the neck at Flossenburg concentration camp on April 9th, 1945, just two weeks before the United States infantry liberated that camp. But his works survive. Probably the one that is most well-read is called The Cost of Discipleship. The Cost of Discipleship. Everyone who goes to seminary reads that book. Um, And in that book, it's most kind of famous quote from the book, one that's often taken out of context and kind of thoughtlessly bandied around by very comfortable American Christians, uh, is as follows. Quote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. End quote. I want to share the full context of that quote. Because if you just pull that out, it sounds terrifying. But there's an existential calmness to it, a kind of moral serenity that's central to the understanding of of Bonhoeffer's thinking. Here's the quote in the full context, quote, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every Christian must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It's that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. And as we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to that death, and thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and follow him. It may be a death like Martin Luther's, who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old person at his call. End quote. So Bonhoeffer, because of this belief... He was deeply concerned with something that he called cheap grace. Cheap grace is the idea that grace, um, God's mercy and forgiveness, that grace might be dispensed by the church at no cost, just freely, haphazardly, just with words. Cheap grace. That the Christian who receives this grace abides beneath a God of low expectations. Remember, folks, when the church has low expectations, when the, church has, when the membership of the church has low expectations of the staff, and the staff of the church has low expectations of the membership, everyone has low expectations of God. But rather, we must be Christians of high expectations. That's why I expect a lot from you. I hope you expect a lot from me, because we all expect a great deal from God. But this is this idea that God's expectations for us are low. Or maybe no expectations. The God of no expectations is the God, I think, that is at the heart of the laughter of the people in today's gospel story. 
who laugh at Jesus Christ. They're attending a funeral. Jesus says the girl will live. And these people of low expectations laugh at him. The Pharisees see the sinners, the tax collectors, the, the sex workers, the individuals who they've cast out time and time again, castigated from their churches, abandoned them from their communities. And they see Jesus Christ, who calls himself a rabbi, sitting with them, blessing them, eating with them, ministering to them, and ministering with them. And because they abide beneath the, 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 the rulership of a God of very low expectations, they have low expectations for these people. These same people who went on to found the church, these are the apostles, and the people around them have very low expectations. Cheap grace is grace, no expectations at all. How many of us have met in our lives an American Christian who boldly and unflinchingly declares that all that's necessary for salvation is to just admit that we're a sinner and accept Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Sinner's prayer. That's easy. Anybody can do that. It doesn't cost you anything. It costs you one breath to say the words. That's it. You're saved. You get to go to heaven when you die. Fire insurance. You could print that on some pamphlets. And use them to harass strangers at the county fair. Is that how cheap our salvation is? Is that how cheap the price of grace was there hanging on the terrible cross? So cheap that it could be had by simply reciting some sort of magical incantation? And then your S-A-V-E-D? Or did it come at such a great price? that we ought to expect it to cost us everything. Suppose I told you that the grace of Jesus Christ would cost you absolutely everything that you have in this world. And yet, it is the easiest, lightest yoke that will ever rest upon your shoulders. It is the price of Surrender. If I could somehow separate your mind from, it, 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 from your relationship with all of the material components of your life. St. John of the Cross writes in, uh, in um, The Dark Night of the Soul. He says that there will be a time in your conversion when you will pray and you will hear nothing but silence and you will despair because you believe that God has abandoned you. And in that moment of your life, it is, that, it is not that God has abandoned you. God is, God is speaking with your soul. You're just not privy to that conversation. Perhaps I could give you this magical pill and you'd no longer have to worry about your finances, your mortgage, your student loans, your credit card score, your relationship with your family members. This is not a cruel trick. Our anxieties are real. Their products are the things that we desire, and our anxieties are products of the gods that we choose to serve. Some of us worship a lot of different little gods, things like our, our FISA score, love of our friends, our favorite sports team, maybe our kids' college acceptance letters. There's a lot of that going on. A lot of these little gods pestering us promising us that we'll have material safety if we just worship them. And then not a one of them gets the best of us, but altogether they raise a heck of a racket. 
these small gods of low expectations. Some of us are worse off. Some of us worship one big nasty God, a God of uh, addiction, a God that dulls the mind, steals our life away from us, a God of alcoholism, prescription pills, and pornography, gambling, something. And sometimes it's even worse, the worst one I can think of of all. We serve a God that seems to run the world, God named Mammon. who is also called money. That's liable to make us terribly anxious. The love of money is not only at the root of all evil, the love of money is a caustic poison that eats away at us. I'm going to bring this back to Bonhoeffer. He had a lot of very frightening things to say about cheap grace versus costly grace about how following Jesus means dying, and it means accepting death as a natural result of discipleship, but do you know what his contemporaries, his friends, those self-same friends who tried desperately to get him to leave Germany before the Nazis could kill him, do you know what they remember most about him? They would say over and over again, he was never anxious. He never showed any signs of anxiety. There's a famous story about him that he was trapped in a Nazi prison during the bombing of Berlin. And all around him, the prisoners were howling and moaning and screaming to be let into the underground bunkers so that they might survive this bombing. But Bonhoeffer stood with his arms raised to the heavens, praying to God for an end to this awful war. The only mention of him ever having any kind of fear at all was when he was finally transferred from the prison to the death camp, and his death was before him. And the prisoners around him said that he spoke, though, as if he was just going off to a country home, but that his eyes had a kind of unnatural look about them. I'm not sure that it was fear as he walked to the gallows, but rather I think it was anticipation. I want to be set free from despair and anxiety. And even when I know that my anxiety has a biological component, even that when I know my mind is working against me, that depression is not a product of my choices, but rather a natural fixture in my life, I want liberation, I want to win my soul, and I want to know resurrection. And I think that Bonhoeffer knew resurrection in his bones. We have two sacraments, the baptism, the Eucharist, and sometimes I think that there is yet a third sacrament the sacrament of resurrection, the sacrament that that little girl experienced in the Gospel of Matthew. Is it blasphemy to say this? Well, resurrection is a thing that Jesus did. We're to do the things that he did. We Christians, we little Christs, perhaps resurrection is a sacrament. I want it. And it's what Bonhoeffer learned. If you give everything that you have, your loyalty, your fidelity, your values, your principles, everything over to Jesus Christ, you will have the peace that comes with that yoke of understanding and that freedom from anxiety. Will you be poor? Perhaps. Will you be hated by powerful people? Likely. Will I, will I die, Lord? 
most certainly, in the words of Jim Morrison, none of us are getting out of here alive. But by taking all that we have and giving it over to the mission of Jesus Christ, you don't wrestle with purpose or place. Your soul abandons its striving for celebrity and the approval of other human beings. If you have wealth, which some of us do, most of us, by, by the standards of the global south, if we have wealth, we can enjoy it without grief or shame because it's in the service to the mission of Jesus Christ. And if you have peace, it will be a gentle peace. You'll have the unity of mind that comes with having purpose. Jesus properly trying to teach us today, if you wish to come after me, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow in my footsteps. Don't stand around laughing at the man who says the girl will live. For he is one with his creator. Little anxieties, can we win against them? Can we win the world? Anxiety here, anxiety here, all of these little anxieties that we've got. Jesus says, don't divide your mind up like this. Don't. You take all of it. Just take all of it. Orient it toward the kingdom of God. And give it to me. Take up your cross, Jesus says. Take up your cross. Orient all of it toward Jesus Christ. Let that be your mantra. Orient it toward Jesus Christ. Shall I suffer? Then I shall suffer for Jesus. Shall I know physical pain? Then I shall know physical pain in service to Jesus Christ. Shall I spend my wealth and my money and my resources? Then I shall do it for Jesus. Should I forgive my enemies? I shall do so for Jesus. How shall I live? What should I wear? What will I eat? What will I do from moment to moment to moment? You'll still have credit card bills. You will still have all sorts of problems. But all of them will be oriented toward Jesus Christ, toward the same goal, the kingdom of God on earth. You know, you know the kingdom of God on earth. We talk about it every Sunday. It's not pie in the sky when you die, folks. Don't ever let anyone trick you into thinking that your life is so worthless to God that its only purpose is to hang around until you get to go to heaven when you're dead. That's nonsense. You are a miracle. You were made by God's own hands to be the builders of the kingdom of God on earth. The serenity of Jesus Christ is our method. It's the method by which we give every worry over toward building the kingdom of God on earth. That's the cost of our grace that we've been given. Strive for the kingdom by putting Jesus Christ first. And yes, simply ask, what would Jesus do? It really is that simple. This is deep and powerful liberation. It's the kind of thing that can fill your life with purpose. And as Jesus teaches us, unlock a life for the ages. It's as simple as that. Align the compass of your soul with the kingdom of God. And you will be fearless. Amen.